All right, everyone, welcome to um, Monday edition. Monday? No, it's Tuesday. Tuesday. A Tuesday edition of Call and Shots. I'm Seth Partnow. I'm joined today by someone who I've been trying to have on this podcast since I started it in January. It's uh, from the Dunker Spot pot and other outlets as well, uh, Nikias Duncan. How are you doing, Nikias? I am doing pretty well, sir. How are you? I am doing great. Um, so... The, uh, the excuse that I finally used to get you to actually come on was a, a couple of weeks ago on Twitter, uh, you posed what I thought was a pretty interesting question. Or maybe it was you were answering a question that someone posed to you. I don't remember exactly what. But it was something along the lines of how has covering basketball in the NBA changed some of your core beliefs about the game and the league? Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a, that was a, a fascinating uh, kind of intro to a conversation because um, – sort of how one updates what one thinks with new information is is a pretty important thing to have a handle on and I and I don't think we we examine that as much as we should because um, you know it's it's sort of you, you, why we, we we have the opinions we do is kind of important um, so let me start with you what uh, in, in the time that you've been you know covering the league and obviously you've been covering it closer and closer the last couple of years um, you know, what what core beliefs have changed? What have have been strengthened? Um, I would say, for one, offensively, like what's I think that's kind of the big thing. If I zoom out, just what's actually important on both ends of the floor. Um, as I've watched more and read more and listened to more people that are a lot smarter than I am, I've learned that while basketball is obviously a simple game, like there are a lot of nuances and complexities that kind of factor into why a possession is successful or unsuccessful. And so for offense, like I've kind of thought, and they're like, okay, obviously you need the bucket getter, you need the guy that can ISO and whatnot. But like beyond that advantage creation, how important that is and the many ways you can go about it has kind of changed for me. So like early on offensively, I'm like, okay, spacing equals shooting. If you can shoot threes, you can space the floor. And I thought like five out basketball was going to be the pinnacle of offensive basketball because though you have, you know, four three-point shooters, you have a a guy that can get downhill or whatever. And that's just kind of what it is. But now I've seen like, okay, four out, one end can work. Three out, two end can work. You can have non-shooters on the floor if you use those guys in a way to create advantage. So like that's gotten a little bit deeper for me. And then defensively, very early in my basketball watching life, it was, okay, you know, defense is effort. And if you don't give the effort, you're going to be bad at it. Or if you don't have certain physical tools, you're going to be bad at it. But as my knowledge of defense has grown, it's like, okay, there are certain roles that you can fill. Um, if you want to go back to last year's playoffs, like I'm watching Trey Young, who is a noted bad defender. It still is a bad defender overall. But like watching him peel over early and help, watching him peel over to the nail and stun on drives and get back out to his guy. And it's like, okay, he's not getting killed. He's functioning within a team system. And everyone else is better than him, but like he's doing his job. And so just how layered things can be, I think it's kind of my big. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I think, um, you know, especially as I got more, like obviously at this point I approach the game mostly from an analytics perspective, but I came in, like I, I, I came in more from having, having played and watched and stuff like that. But as I've gotten more into that, I, I think a lot of what you're saying like resonates with me because you know you think we, we express things in terms of like points per possession. It's like oh they're they're three like you know they're they're, they're three points per possession better than this other team, and that, that's you know over the course of an NBA season that's a big deal. But you think about that, 
that's like 0.03 points per possession. That's there's just like the things that the, the small differences that make that, that that add up to make that a sizable difference. Really, to, to what you're saying, like the like the nuances of you know that you know being one step to, to the right or wrong direction on the stunt matters a lot because, for example, either you know you, you stunt and recover uh, to the nail, like either you're closing out when the guy catches the ball or you're already closed out, mm-hmm. and that's just such a huge difference in terms of what happens next. No, that's exactly right. Like, it's been fun, especially over the last year and a half. I've been doing the pod with Steve. Um, he's just a wealth of knowledge. And, like, watching his game threads, being able to talk to him. Like, there are so many things that happen, especially defensively. There are just so many things that happen that I just wasn't privy to when I first started watching basketball. Like, I didn't know how much. I knew spacing mattered. But, I did. But I, again, I was thinking of that mostly of, like, okay, who can knock down threes at a high clip? But, like, the actual spacing, where players are, the kind of strain that you can put on health defenders and stuff. Like, I just had no idea how important those kind of nuances were until I got deeper into it. Are there specific player types that have, like, grown or shrunk in your estimation? And a follow-up question to that is how much is that? Is that, like, your kind of changing understanding of basketball? And how much of it is sort of the style of the league changing in front of our eyes? Um, I would say it's become like a running joke on the pod at this point. But, like, I think my view of big men in general have changed <laughs> as it's grown. And like, Because once I actually started getting into scheme stuff, I'm just like, okay, cool. So these are different, different defensive schemes that teams want to employ. This is the big man's responsibility on all of those. If you can only do one of those things, I'm not really a fan. And so the easy one for me early on was like, okay, drop big. If you can only hang back at the rim, you can't play in space, you can't switch, you can't blitz or whatever, then it's like, okay, what do we need you for? And, you know, you learn more. It's like, okay, that's very harsh. And, like, those kind of problems are present no matter what the scheme is. If you can only switch and you can't hold your own in the paint, then what's the point? Right? So, like, I think that's probably the position or the archetype that I'm still trying to gather my feelings on the more traditional big man, I guess. I think I've both overrated their importance in some areas, and then now, as I've gotten into it, now I feel like I kind of underrate them in what they can do. So it's just kind of been a push-pull in that regard. That's, I mean, that's, that we'll, we'll get into this more later, but that's like I've, I'm writing about, uh, you know, the, the defensive play of the year race for, for later in this week, and, like, that's sort of figuring out, um, you know, we've sort of always said that, that assumed that like a, you know, a great anchor big is a defense unto himself. And in the regular season, that's somewhat true, mm-hmm. but, but figuring out like who actually has responsibility for that defense, just being pretty good or being great between, you know, the big and, and the help defenders. And I think that's, a, I mean, you know, from a qualitative standpoint, I think that's a big part of the reason why, Rudy Gobert is sort of recognized as the the best of that as you look at the defensive talent he's had around him. And, you know, regardless of scheme, you can turn a forward line of Joe Ingles and Boyan Bogdanovich into a top five defense um, with, you know, uh, with depending on who's on the floor, okay to below average defensive backcourt. Like, 
I, I think you, you you know where that's going. But then someone like you know Brooke Lopez, who was you know obviously the Bucks miss him a lot this year, but was it him or was it Giannis or was it like Eric Bledsoe and then Drew Holiday like putting pressure on ball handlers to force them into the big guys? Like it, it sort of all works together and figuring out who to credit and blame and and how to value those things is just. Like, I knew it was complicated, and it's just, like, the more I learn about it, the, the less I know, almost. Yeah, I'm glad you said that, because that's kind of been my reckoning over the last two or three years with drop in particular, where it's like, okay, the big man is the big, is the most important part. Like, you're sealing off the rim. You have to be able to challenge shots. You want to be able to end possessions. And, like, not that point of attack defense wasn't important to me, but... You know, you mentioned Brooke Lopez. Like, he had Eric Bledsoe and then Drew Holiday. And then you look in Utah, and, you know, Mike Conley is mostly fine, but Donovan Mitchell is not. Jordan Clarkson is not. Et cetera. So it's like you've recognized, you recognize, like, the point of attack defense matters just as much, or they aren't that far off in terms of importance for making that kind of scheme work. And you can make, just like a guard can look bad if they have a bad rim protector behind them, a big can look worse than what he is as a rim protector if he's constantly having to clean up messes. Like you know, just to, it's easy. It made, it's almost easier to illustrate with uh, analogies to other sports. But uh, you know, I think the like cornerbacks uh, who play with with good defensive, good good pass rushers, mm-hmm. sure are better. Yeah, and I think it's a very similar kind of it's a very similar dynamic there. Like you give, especially now, all like like so many teams have guys who can operate with the ball, and, and you know, if you if you let them walk into it, shoot, pull up threes. That if you give a guard a free, just an absolutely free run at a big, it, all, it doesn't matter, you know. It's it, it. But if you have, if you put some pressure on that guy and you know, take away some of his some of his eye line and make him operate a little bit faster, then then all of a sudden, like that big wall in front of him is more intimidating. Right. Um. What about I'll, I'll say like like I, you, you mentioned earlier about like bucket getting. Um. I don't know if I value that skill less than I did before, but I certainly think a lot differently about it mm-hmm. than I did before. Um, in, in terms of, I think there's no, I, I was, you may or may not agree with this, but there's no player type in basketball that's more overrated than the mediocre bucket getter. <laughs> no, I would. And and so just like figuring out like what level someone has to be at doing that for it to actually be a valuable skill versus uh, showiness mm-hmm. is like that's that's um, you know uh, it used to be a guy could you know get buckets in college oh man that's I want that guy on my team he gets buckets and then guy gets into the league and has a forty nine percent true shooting and doesn't do anything else and is out of the league in three years and so oh, whoops missed on that one. And you know, I have to learn had to learn that lesson five or ten times and and now it's possible I've gone too far the other way. But um yeah, I think that just like understanding like you know, some skills just like it's even just having a little bit of something, like even just you know, going from a non-shooter to a thirty-three percent three three-point shooter is something. Going from having no offense, no you know, on-ball creation to having some bad on-ball creation might actually make you a worse player. It's fascinating. Like the three-point shooting is interesting. Like that's another thing that's kind of altered in my eyes over the last year and a half. Like three-point percentage matters. Like volume matters more to me 
and that was something that I just didn't have a handle on early on. It's like, okay, this guy's shooting 40% from three. Why are they staying off of him? And then you look, it's like, oh, he's taking two and a half a game. Oh, they're probably leaving him open for a reason then. Oh, he has a slow load up. So if you pressure him at all, he can't get a shot up. Like the, um, oh, what year was this? This 2013 or 2014, the beginning and ending of Steve Novak as an effective player in the league, basically. <laughs> when he is firing threes and he's doing the discount double check type beat, whatever. You get to the playoffs, it's like, oh, wait, this guy can't dribble. What is What does he mean now? And so it's just like, oh, there's a lot more that goes into even being an effective outside shooter. Like, now being able to attack a closeout matters a lot more. You can't just be a stationary shooter. Like, being able to relocate, being able to shoot off movement, like, that adds value to what you do. Like, it's... I don't know. I just feel like I'm constantly evolving with what matters and what doesn't and just being made privy to different areas of a specific skill set that I just didn't think about before. That's right. Um, what about some other, like, coaching is a big one that um, has, has, as I've paid more attention, has evolved. Um, I think that I, probably like most people, at one point, like, had the, had the, the vision of, like, NBA coaches as almost like, you know, I used to say it's like they have the PlayStation controller. So it's like, I can't believe he let them do this and, and whatever. It's like... <laughs> No, it's kind of you, like twenty four second shot clock is, is 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 short enough, and these games are fast enough that like players on some level players are going to do what they're going to do, and you can you kind of put them in the positions where that works to your benefit, but it's, you don't have that. Most coaches don't have that level of control over most players. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and and because of that, I've I've you know realized that like the stuff we don't see about coaches is so much more important than the stuff we do see. Mm-hmm. Like the, you know, the, the, the having the, like, and this is something that, that probably working for a team illustrated even more, more to me is just like helping the team, like in the team being like, not just the players, but the coaches, the video staff, everyone else, helping them just survive with their sanity over the amount of time and travel and games you play is you know we don't we we see none of that we maybe see the effects of that but we see none of that happening and that's like to my mind that's almost the most important thing a coach does until you get to the playoffs and then everything and then all the stuff that maybe matters less like all of a sudden matters a whole lot i get you <laughs> like i've had a an interesting journey with coaching in general because like on one hand i'm with you it's just like hey why is the coach letting this letting such and such happen and then you look at the effect of like a guy like LeBron, a guy like James Harden, who can just kind of dictate the flow of every half court position they want to. And it's like, oh, well, how much does a coach really do? But again, you get a better handle of like what schemes are, um, who employs what, what's needed to make that successful. Then you can actually see like, okay, now they're doing something different. These adjustments are actually being made. These guys are putting being put in position to succeed or they're not. Like, uh, I guess, like, Jim Boyle would be an example. Where it's like, why are they blitzing literally everything? Like, this seems to be putting quite a strain on these folks. Like, why not do something else? Like, I can now ask those questions. Like, there's only so much you're going to know about what a coach does or doesn't do from the outside looking in. But I, I just feel like now I have a better handle on what they're trying to do. 
And then that makes it a little bit easier to assign, okay, what blame is on the coach for having the players attempt to do this and how much of it is there's a very clear directive here. Players made a bad decision. And that's kind of on the player to do what he needs to do. So like, I feel like that's something that's growing for me. I, th- I think that's right. I think it's, it's you know, I, I think for the most part, we basically overrate the impact coaches have, like, over, over, over you know, wins and losses on a regular season. Most are kind of, you know, there's a couple of guys who are worth, like, you know, four or five wins a season. At this point, I don't even think there's that many guys in the league that it used to be there's, like, five at the top and five at the bottom. I don't even think, like, there's five at the bottom anymore. It's maybe, like, two or three. Mm-hmm. Really like like are 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 you know holding their team down, uh, and, and everyone else is sort of mostly in the middle, and they do some things well and and other things not well, just sort of like players do. It's just we don't have the we don't have the vocabulary to talk about the things that coaches do well and right. not you know you know in in some okay Kenny Atkinson's a great development coach. Uh, we we surmise by by certain things, but maybe not as great with dealing with you know veteran egos or something like that. Mm-hmm. Which I think it's a reasonable surmise from how his his, uh, his tenure in Brooklyn played out, but like that's that's un, that's unusual in terms of the detail of us of of how we you know analyze coaches. Yeah, like, you know, there's only so much we can know, like so much of even with what they're trying to implement. Like we may get the the bare bones of it. Like you may be able to tell, like, okay, this is the type of half court attack they want to go with. This is going to be a pick and roll heavy offense, whatever on defense, they want to drop or on defense. They want to blitz or whatever. We're not in practices. Like we don't know every, okay, help here unless X, Y, Z happens. And then we get to a game breakdown the third quarter. It's like, well, why did this player do this? Or why is this player open when you would think you would be told to do something? Like we just don't know all of that. Sure. Um, before we wrap up on this and, and kind of move to to a team that that has been fascinating for me this year, um, that has both met and exceeded the expectations I had for them, I guess, in the Heat. Um, mm-hmm. is, there, is there like any like big picture takeaway from again like uh, like a really like core belief that has that has been strengthened by? By you know more is like no, I was right about that. I, 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 my intuition was correct. Um, basically, basically, you were genius about what already. <laughs> um, I think the closest thing to it is it, it's funny because it started off as like a, a video game slash two K thing, but like the NBA now prioritizing like your big wings or these big creators, like running, like letting Jokic run a pick and roll every now and then. Like, I think seeing that revolution, like that seemed to be a very natural thing that was coming, like prioritizing size. Like I got the small ball revolution, but it's like, yeah, it's cool. Everyone wants a bunch of six, 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 seven guys. But if a six, 10 guy can do that, then you're probably going to want that guy instead of six, seven guy and so on and so forth. And so now seeing it kind of trend that way, I think would be my best shot. Yeah, I think it turned like in in retrospect, it turned out that the thing wasn't playing smaller; it was playing more skilled. Yeah, and and like bigger is still better because you know it's a game that height is important because the goal is ten feet off the ground. Mm-hmm. And so I think you're right now, like that that like guys like you know trying to imagine like how long ago would it have been where like. Jokic would just, no one would consider allowing him to play the way he plays. 
It wouldn't have been that long ago, I don't think. Or maybe maybe it would have been just so obvious that he would have, you know, broken the mold sort of the same way Steph did. But I think that would depend on like you know where he ended up and who and who he was playing for. Right, because like even in Denver, like they had he was backing up Nurkic for a little bit. So like even that took a little bit of time before he took on the rain. I mean, there was you know there's I think there's I mean there was you can almost understand the reason for that because I I was I, when I, I was talking to to Brett Carmenos about this yesterday. Because he, he he was training a guy who was on that uh, the summer league team Jokic was on, and it was like okay, well, you got Emmanuel Mudiay who's you know slinging the ball over the floor, and and like uh, you know a few other decent looking like wing prospects, and then they got this like uh, this European big guy who is not much of an athlete, but he seems like he knows what he's doing out there. If he's if he if he can you know if if he can compete athletically, he might be something. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that guy's the, like now one of the two or three best players in the world, which, <laughs> <laughs> like. You know, who didn't see that coming? But, uh, yeah. Um, so the other big thing I want to talk to you about is, is you know, the, the, the Miami Heat. That's a, I think, I think it's, frankly, it's a team that I probably don't watch as much as I should. And certainly I'm not as, as you know, familiar with, with, with how their season has gone than, than I might be. But they're, they're a team that you pay a lot of attention to. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Um, how are we feeling about their about you know what, how the season has gone for them and where they might ultimately end up? Um, I think they have. <clears throat> I think they've exceeded my expectations already. I'm in a weird place with them because they both exceeded my expectations, but they also haven't answered the core question that I had for them heading into the year. Because the big thing with that Milwaukee series last year, where they just got absolutely stomped in. It's like, okay, who creates in the half court on this team? Who scares defenses in the half court against this team? We all, like, we can all agree that Jimmy Butler is a top 12, 15 player in the league when he's healthy. Bam Adebayo is probably in the, you know, that 15 to 20 range, or if you think a little bit lower than that, that's fine. But generally 15, 25. But, like, who draws two to the ball between those guys? Like, Jimmy doesn't really... And Bam doesn't really either. And so my question heading into the year was like, this is a team that's building their roster to be dangerous in the playoffs. They're adding veterans to get a P.J. Tucker, to get Kyle Lowry. Like, I didn't expect them to be this kind of regular season success story. But, like, they were very much trending towards, once we get into the playoffs, we want to have answers for our questions. But the shot creation in the half court was the one that hasn't been answered for me yet. But beyond that, the defense has been incredible, very scheme versatile. They can switch, they can go zone, they can blitz. They're just the different amount of things that they can do on that end is incredible. And then offensively, they've been able to kind of shape shift on offense too. Like they've gone post split heavy, they've gone ISO heavy. During that stretch when Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo were out, it was Kyle Lowry and a bunch of role players. They're and just bombing. Vincent and Max Struess and, yeah. and Caleb Martin. Yeah, and they're, and they're just bombing threes all over the place. It's like, okay, like we talk about coach, like that is a coach that says, okay, we are just going to shape whatever we're doing based on who we have available slash who we're playing. And we're just going to take it game by game, sometimes quarter by quarter. And they've been able to do that. Um, I said this on a pod I did with Kevin O'Connor. I was like, I feel like this is Eric Spolster's best coaching job. Be, just because of 
it's saying something too. I mean, I think he yeah. is. I, I mean, I don't think that at this point, I don't think there's much question. He's the best coach in the league. Is there? No, I, I think it's like the short list for me is like him, Ty Lue, and Monty is probably my top three. But I think Spoh's the one right now. I mean, it's it's you know all the things we tie because I think that that uh, it's like it's the scheme thing, it's the keeping players together thing, it's the it's the um, I and I really noticed this for the first time in 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 the bubble when he was given like interviews and he was like sort of the just the amount of empathy he was showing in his answers, mm-hmm. like like that's 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 pretty important. Like the, you know that's a big part of why Steve Kerr has been a successful successful coach with the Warriors is sort of the emotional intelligence to kind of know what your players need on a given day, like not from a, like a basketball standpoint, but from a, a human being standpoint. And you combine that with like, you know, unquestioned authority, which he's earned over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, as you say, like uh, possibly the best in-game tactician as well. Um, certainly, you know, he's, he's, does very clever things ATO. I think we've we've kind of talked about this on, on Twitter a little bit. Like he's like the Heat are the one team that consistently, all right, when they when they have to inbound the ball like, you know, up a couple points late in the game when the other team is fouling, they just clear out the court and like if the other team goes for a trap, <laughs> they take the dunk. Just like, oh yeah, we'll just take the free points. And, and <laughs> like <laughs> fine, you get the ball back, but you're down you're down six now. So um, and it just, you know, just, just little things like that where he just he, he maximizes so many edges for them. Yeah, like you said earlier, like some of the top coaches in the league may add, what, four or five wins in a season. Like Spoh's definitely been that guy. Like the first time I really noticed that portion of it was that 16-17 season with James Johnson and Deion Waiters where they start the year 11 and 30, then it's 30 and 11 to close it out. And it's like, what the heck is happening right now? How are they getting win? Like beat Golden State that season? Like how are they able to do this? And you give credit to the players, obviously. Like Dion was insane. James Johnson, everything he was able to do. It it feels like forever ago that those two were productive NBA players for a non-insignificant stretch of time. But both incredible, man. I, I like a lot of what I've learned defensively over the last years has just been following the Heat team. And, the amount of things that they do. Like, I tell people if they want to learn more about defense, like, watch Miami and watch Toronto. You will learn about different schemes. You'll learn about different rotations, uh, responsibilities, and things like that, because they just throw out anything. Just, and I think that's an underrated, that's an underrated um, facet of, of coaching the NBA, is just be, being willing to try stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, that's, you mentioned Ty Lu. I think that's a big strength of his and, and Nick Nurse as well. So, I mean, like, you know, those are those guys. And like, if you're, if you're, you know, making your list of top coaches in the NBA, like the three coach, the three guys you named and Nick Nurse would be on most people's lists, I think. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Monty is probably the least creative of that group. Um, but the other three are certainly like the willingness to, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. That's fine. Some people say, Oh, why'd you do that? I, I thought it would work. It didn't. Then we got out of it. Um, <laughs> that, you know, that it, there's uh, a lot of coaches don't do that kind of stuff because, you know, you didn't like it and made fun of me. And so I'm not going to do that anymore, which is, you know, juvenile, but doesn't mean it doesn't happen, uh, you know, in, in coaching across sports, which tend to, tends to be a very kind of uh, small C conservative profession in that way. Yeah. And I think that kind of speaks to the level of trust that they have 
from the guys above them. Like Spo has the he has the room to try stuff and fail and then go back to it if he wants to later on down the road because he knows like okay if I try this in a game and we lose one to like the Thunder or something because it didn't work I'm not going to be on the hot seat now because I lost the game I shouldn't have. Like they kind of know towards a bigger goal. And so, like, he has that equity. I think Ty Lue definitely has that equity. Um, Nick Nurse has that equity. Not everyone does. That's right. But it's it's, it's earned. So, I mean, it's, it, you know, um, the fair, fair play to those guys. Um, so, like, those are, the, those, those are some of the positives for Miami this year. Um, I've been saying, I've been circling around, and, and I'm mad at Kevin Pelton, who kind of beat me to this. He was on Brian Windhorst's pod this morning and basically picked the Celtics to come out of the East, and I've been flirting with doing it and hadn't been able to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, the, what, the, the big obvious comparison is those are, at this point, after the trade deadline, the Celtics and Heat are very similarly constructed teams, I think. The, the difference is what you were talking about earlier. The Celtics have one to two elite shot creators, depending on, on, you know, what you think of Jalen Brown on a given night. Mm-hmm. And while also having like high degree of scheme versatility on defense. And I feels like in the playoffs, that's going to really be a strength for Boston. Whereas that's a big question mark for Miami. Yeah. Like their best half court shot creation option has been Tyler hero this year, who looks like he's running away with six men a year right now. He has taken substantial leaps as a creator from where he was as a rookie, at least. But that's also part of the problem. Like in an ideal world, you would want to say, okay, we trust Jimmy to seek out a mismatch. We trust Bam to seek out a mismatch. We trust Kyle Lowry to kind of set the table and make timely shots and make drives to kind of kick off the chain. And we also have Tyler Hero. But what it's felt like for large chunks of this season is, oh, snap, the offense isn't doing anything. Tyler, we need you to knock down a bunch of step backs. And to his credit, he's been able to do that. But that is a wild burden for a third-year guard to carry. And if you look at the Philadelphia game from last night, he's has, he has to carry that burden. But also, he is the flashing red sign for opposing offense. It's like, okay, last three minutes of the game, the Heat are just switching everything. We need to find a matchup to pick at. Let's pick on Tyler Hero. And he competes. It's not necessarily a I'm out of position type thing. He physically just can't defend high-level talent. And so that's where I'm just kind of like, I want to like Miami. I think they have the best coach in the league. I think they have, at the very least, the most scheme-versatile defense among all the playoff teams. They have vets. They have all-stars. But that one question is where I'm just like, okay, if they do get Boston in the Eastern Conference Finals, Boston is just going to switch them to death. And what are they going to do? Who is the small guy for Jimmy Butler to pick on? The small guy for Jimmy Butler to pick on in the starting lineup is Marcus Smart. And that's not... Look at that. Yeah. yeah, that's not, yeah, Jimmy Butler is taller and probably a little bit stronger than Marcus Smart, but that's not a mismatch at all. And so, you, you know, you compare that with what Jason Tatum has been able to do in 2022. It's like, oh man, like the Heat can switch and make things tough on him too, but... I think most people would trust Jason Tatum to give you 30 points in a single game more than they would trust anyone on the Heat roster. I think that's a fair thing to say. The, the other question I have is, like, who is is for Boston, it's it's just it's easier to come up with, you know, they can put out 
pick any five, well, any pick Jason Tatum in any four of their other top seven, and it's a reasonably balanced lineup that is very solid or better defensively and has some, you know, different ways to score offensively. I don't really feel that way about Miami. I feel like they can have lineups that have enough shooting and lineups that can defend, and <laughs> those aren't really the same lineups. Yeah, which, I mean, that opens them up for some, like, offense, defense, so if you want to go that route. But, like, yeah. I'm with you. Like, the continuity is kind of an issue because, again, like, <clears throat> they need Tyler Hero at the end of games. They can't afford, to, especially at this point, like, they can't afford to say, okay, we need defense kind of like they do with Duncan Robinson, who's only closed a handful of games this season. So they, again, there's just such a burden on Tyler Hero this year for the Heat to get to where they want to go. And he can do it. It won't, it certainly won't be like him being shook by the moment or anything like that. He is not scared at all. He's made big shots this year. He's made big shots in the playoff career already. But to rely on that for at the very least two rounds, is it's a tough bet. It's a really tough bet. I think so. I think sneakily the possibly the most important player on their roster for the playoffs is Caleb Martin. Hmm. Is that is that, is that a wild take? Uh, that might... I, I want to hear you out. So I mean that like he's he like for everything else they are not an especially athletic team. And so the guy who has, you know, the combination of size, athleticism, and hopefully just enough shot making to, I don't want to say go toe to toe. Like he's not like, you never it's not going to be like a duel between him and Jason Tatum, but he can like physically compete on defensively and then make shots on the, and then if he can make shots on the other end, like those, this is, this is like, we talked about core beliefs. I, a, something that has become a core belief of mine is you can never have enough athletic six five to six eight guys to yeah. to succeed in the in, in the playoffs this year uh, in, 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 in like kind of the NBA playoffs like like guys who are have of some are physically strong athletic can make a play with the ball like they don't need to be the best shooter they don't need to be the best creator they just need to be able to you know it's it's the cliche of dribble pass and shoot if they can do all three of those things a little bit and defend like that's a guy I want on my playoff roster. And you look at the heat and do they have any of any guys that, that fit that mold other than him? Uh, man, like the closest they would have if he's healthy would probably be Oladipo. And even then, like that's asking for a lot based on the amount of time that he's missed since he's been in a heat uniform. So. And you have to figure that his athleticism isn't what it was. And you take that and he was, you know, he's, he's, he's only about six, three, yeah. you know, before he, the injuries, he played bigger than that, but I, I don't know if we can really count on that anymore. Yeah. Uh, okay. Like I, all right. I see where you're coming from with that. Like I, maybe most important is, is probably is, is going too far, but the guy who's going to be a, a Probably the more modest and, and correct way of putting that is a guy who's going to be a huge swing piece for them yeah. in the playoffs. I mean, sort of like, I don't know. Um, I don't want to overstate his contributions last year, but, I mean, Pat Connaughton was a huge for the Bucks winning the championship last year. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, timely shot making, rebounding, guarding multiple positions. 
like for a team that sort of felt like they were running out of guys at times. Mm-hmm. Like, and you know, we see like those guys. You just can't have enough of those guys right now. And that's you know a big part of why Phoenix is um, pretty terrifying in the playoffs. They have four of them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So what are you like go, heading towards the playoffs? Like what you know. The, the Heat are a team that can win a championship. What do you think their most likely outcome is in the postseason this year? Like, at this point, they probably are going to get the one seed, mm-hmm. um, which gives them some advantage. Of course, the one seed might not be all it's cracked up to be this year, depending on how Brooklyn ends up. Um, and wouldn't that be fun, by the way, is, is uh, KD going against P.J. Tucker again in, in round one of the playoffs? Um, yeah, we battle-tested. Goodness. <laughs> um, but like what, you know, in terms of expectations, like what do you think is a fair level of expectations for the, for, for their playoff progress? I think the absolute worst that he can do without obvious caveat, like if Jimmy Butler breaks his leg two days before the playoffs or something, like obviously that tends to things, but like if they're reasonably healthy, like they need to take, <clears throat> they need to take a really good team to six games in the second round at the very least. Like, I think, because looking at what the bracket is right now, um, if it is Miami-Brooklyn, like, as of today, I would take Miami in that series. I think that goes six. And then they would probably be looking at Boston in the second round. And I'm not sure where I am on that right now. Um, So, like, if they do get, like, a Boston in the second round, like, that needs to go at least six games and be competitive. If Boston pulls that out, then cool. If they beat Boston, I wouldn't be surprised either. But I think anything – a first-round exit would not be great for them, even if it is this. <laughs> that would not. Yeah, be. I mean, it's, it's, especially if Brooklyn – if, like, you know, Brooklyn, who has, you know, Kyrie for half the series and Ben Simmons, yeah. maybe not at all. Like, I think that news that he has a her- that he had a herniated disc, I think, changes our expectations that that's a fair amount heading towards mm-hmm. the playoffs. Like, it answers one of those unknowns in with a big thumbs down. Yeah, so, like, even – I don't want to disrespect Kevin Durant because we know what he can do. But, like, the Heat have the better team. They have the better coach. Obviously, they have the better record. Like, it would still be at least a little bit of a disappointment if Brooklyn comes in and beats them with maybe partial Kyrie and a lot of Kevin Durant. But yeah, after that, yeah, like – They were a big toe from beating the champs with that last year, so. Uh, so, I uh, <laughs> – it, it needs to be at least heavily contested the second round. Yeah, yeah. You know, you... So, I, I, hmm. I think that's right. I mean, it's the, the second round. Like, there's no. Is, I'm not sure there's a good matchup for them in the second round because the likely candidates are Boston, Milwaukee, Philadelphia, and each of those teams like presents a, sort of a different challenge for them. Although, hmm. what, what we make of the Sixers at this point. I mean, I mean, actually, let's talk about that. Okay. Um, since they played last night, and like, you know, without Embiid, and like, the, it was like, oh man, this 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 uh, Sixers team. I don't know. I don't know how hard and Embiid. Are. And then they play. Then they beat Miami, a pretty healthy Miami, without without both of them. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't like. I just this. I, for the sixth year in a row, it seems like I don't know what to, like what what's going on with Philly. Yeah, I 
I'm trying to get a hand because like the Harden Embiid pairing has been <clears throat> more seamless than I thought it would be this quickly. And I thought this was something that they would work to, but they pretty much they established pretty solid chemistry basically from game one against For about Minnesota. forty minutes of the game, I want to say. Yeah, I think so, this, the, the like there's been a couple games where down the stretch it's been James with the ball and then beat asking for the ball and not getting it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's I don't I don't think that's tenable. I think that the the way like the better balance they've had through the bulk of other games and, and like the first couple games they played together is, you know, anything that involves like Embiid not being like at this at, least at this at this point in their relative careers like shifting usage from Embiid to Harden at the end of games is I think a mistake. Yeah, like I think for why you bring Harden in, like you want Harden to be able to play off of Joel Embiid getting doubled late in the game. You want James Harden for the first three quarters, and then some, to where you don't have you don't have to rely on forty usage Joel Embiid in the playoffs. Like you want Harden to take a lot of the usage early on in the game, go ISO, go pick and roll, whatever, and then late dump it down to Joel because nobody can defend him one on one, and let James kind of fire from there. And also keep the team afloat when you when those minutes where you have to play DeAndre Jordan because I don't know if I don't know if you know this yeah. it's written into his contract that he he will get ten minutes a game no matter what. <laughs> oh man, oh. I don't have any other explanation for it, um, but yeah, it was a shout out to the first like thirty or forty games of the year when Joel Embiid actually had a good backup center. That was fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and of course they're still good. They're always going to play with the center too. And they, and at this point though, they don't they don't necessarily have a you know uh, a plausible five out lineup that they can put out there against most playoff teams. I don't think there's maybe some opponents where you can get weird and have like Tobias play the five or something like that. But for the most part, I don't think that I don't think they have the I don't think they have the the sort of the that that four or five swing guy that they need to to play that way with uh, with Embiid off the floor. Yeah, what, what the best version of that would be? What like Maxi Harden, Danny Green, Niang, and Harris? Would that be their best bet at that? I mean, maybe Thibel in there somewhere. I don't know. That's like that's a you know you talk about a. A swing piece in the playoffs. I think Diebel is like, um, yeah. That like that was that was my takeaway from when they played uh, Denver. Is is that defensively at the end of games, having Harden and Maxi and front court players is is going to be rough defensively because Denver faced no, despite not having really a point guard on the floor, faced no resistance getting into getting into good sets. With mm-hmm. that backcourt, it's like the one guy on the Sixers you can look at to maybe change that is Thibel, but then you have the you have the issue on the other end. Mm-hmm. And just him being able to find usage in the half court in a playoff setting is where I'm looking at. Because like early on, with the, as a screener has been good. I feel like he's shown good instincts <laughs> around the dunker spot. Like that's not a new thing for him, but like he's played well off of Harden and Embiid, but. Yeah, in the playoffs, I think the help is going to be even more exaggerated. Like, they are just not going to defend him at all. 
I mean, he's going to get the full Warbison treatment. Yeah, he's going to have to make them pay because he's he yeah. is the guy. Danny Green has lost a step and a half defensively at this point. And, and certainly not like someone you can. I think we saw this against Atlanta this year, last year. Not someone you can you can you know. Earlier in his career, he's someone you could probably like have use his size to bother ball handlers a little bit. And I think mm-hmm. it, like like that's where the the decline is most uh, most evident. I think is that just mm-hmm. like he, he can't do that anymore. Yeah, like he he has to be a wing guy now. Yeah, which isn't the yeah. worst thing in the. World. Right, again, green navigator is Matisse, and he can be jumpy too. So it's, I, you know, I'm I'm just a little bit curious. So we we got off Miami for a second, and I since I'm writing about defensive player of the year this week, um, mm-hmm. you know, I a couple weeks ago I, I I threw my hands up in the air on Twitter. It's like I have no idea who should be defensive player of the year this year, um, and I got a lot of people coming back at me saying, "No, oh, it's Bam. It's obviously Bam." Now I don't. I generally like. When I when the argument is well, it's obvious, you idiot. I generally like start to think. I start to think the other way, like just because mm-hmm. that's you know, how I'm hard. But, but is it is is Pam like the 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 should he be considered the front runner for defensive player of the year? I mean, well, okay, put it not in terms of will he or won't he win it, but in terms of who's the most deserving. Uh. I feel like, and I said this recently, like I think on a per-possession basis, Bam has been, at worst, the second-best defender in the league this year. Like, it's been between him and Draymond when they've been on the court, for me, just in terms of what they mean from a quarterbacking standpoint, how just the responsibility that Bam has as a guy that switches, can also play drop, can also trap, can also be in the middle of his own. He does quite a bit for them. Uh, so I would not be opposed to him winning at all. My thing is he has missed a ton of time. And that's where I'm just like, okay, Bam has been really, really, really good on a per possession basis. But if Giannis has played, just throwing out a number, if Giannis has played like 600 more possessions, then like, has he been that? Giannis going to be better. And so that's kind of been what I've struggled with, with his case. I don't think so. This is like I see. Obviously, I see the Bucks more than I see everybody else. I don't think Gian, on a per possession basis. I don't think Giannis has been consistently nearly as good this year. And I think it's in, especially early in the year when they were, you know, when when Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday were were missing time, and with like he had to do so much of offensively that mm-hmm. like just that like there were there were nights where he didn't play with the same, you know the same all-court destroyer thing, and then obviously having to be, like, not not having, like, you know, Brooke Lopez as, like, the, the, the tent pole, him having to be more of that has kind of taken something away from, from him. And I think, you, I mean, you, I mean, I think to some degree that's evident in the fact that the Bucks are basically an average defense this year. Now, hmm. maybe you can argue that, and this is sort of the Gobert thing also, this, like, is, like, getting the talent that's been on the floor around him to an average defense is a, is a Herculean task. And, you know, there's probably something to that argument. And, you know, similarly for the, the Jazz, getting them to, what are they, about 10th in defense right now, despite, like, really not good defensive talent around Gobert. Like, but I just, I, 
both from a, a metric standpoint and observation, they both have, have seen just a little bit worse this year. Am I imagining that, or is that just like fatigue over the guys who've won it recently? No, I think that's fair. And I think, <clears throat> again, like the only reason we are having this discussion about like the Giannis slip off versus Giannis's general dominance slash what he's doing with the personnel conversation is because Draymond's missed half the year. Yes. Like if yes. Draymond's healthy, like we're not even, we're probably not no. talking about him either, especially with the game. No, no, I think I, I don't think, but like yeah, Draymond's Draymond's going to have played you know fifty games, and I don't know if I don't like. And I mean, the other interesting thing is is Draymond is is uh, as I've been saying this, Draymond's stats are going to be you know to the extent that we trust like the defensive metrics, they're going to be um, goosed by the fact that the time he missed was largely when the league as a whole was like going nutty offensively. So it's like, because like it's almost like like there's two different seasons and like the the season that he that the bulk of his games played were played in was like a you know a six points per hundred lower offensive environment, and so his overall numbers are gonna are gonna look much better because he you know he didn't he didn't play in like the the silly part of the season where everyone was scoring 130. Right. So then. <clears throat> I just I I don't know. Like I'm just trying to see because Bam is at how many games now? I think he's going to end up clearing sixty this year, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, if, he, if he plays the rest, I, or if he plays the rest of the year, I think he gets to like low sixties. Okay. If, yeah, he's at forty-seven games now. <clears throat> forty-seven games, and he have ten to go. Looks like okay. So he's oh, going. So he's only going. Low fifties then, or high fifties then. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Up, I feel like that's right on the. So now I'm like looking around. Like, do you you, you start to talk about Jaron Jackson? Do you talk start to talk about one of the like you know who would you even talk about on the Celtics who've been just <clears throat> like you know the best defense in the league over the whole season by some margin, especially obviously especially since the trade deadline. Like, mm-hmm. who, um, like I don't know. So who like. Well, I think we'll close with this. I'm not, if, I, if I put you on the spot and said, name your defensive player of the year. Um, I'll echo what we came to when it was me, Mark Schindler, and Jackson Frank for basketballnews.com. We did a defense piece not too long ago. We wound up at Marcus Smart as a defense player of the year. That's, I mean, that's, that seems plausible. It's just, it's, it's been so, like, when was the last time, like, a true perimeter guy won defensive player of the year? Uh, I mean, do we keep him Kawhi as pure? I don't think we do. I mean, because Kawhi, I mean, Kawhi was the guy who ended up playing like the four a lot. Mm-hmm. So, like, I, I, I'm almost not even a pure, like a guard. Like, Gary Payton's a lot Gary of guard winner, right? Yeah. yeah. But I think, especially with a year like this, where, again, Draymond was the obvious winner during this time. And then Bam would be second for me, but he's also, he's missed almost as much time. Giannis, weird year. Gobert, really good, but also kind of a weird year. And then I guess you, have to, you kind of have to factor in the voter fatigue. Like, I don't have a vote yet. So I would imagine, I don't, I don't know how juiced people are going to be vote for Rudy Gobert again. Would you want, would you want a vote? Like, if it was off, like, I've, I've, I, I've never wanted a vote. I would say no if it one was offered. 
Um, that just, that just, that, that, that feels weird. Just because I'm having been on the other side of it, like those, those, those votes carry weight to this. Like, that's a weird spot to be, to be like, yes, I'm deciding how much you get paid. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, I think in general, I would want one just because I, like, I've seen the Andre Drummond gets an all defensive vote because he leads the league in defensive rebounds. I'm thinking, I'm just like, if I, I know I, care enough and watch enough and pay close enough attention to where something like that wouldn't happen. So within that lens, like, yeah, absolutely. Like, I would love to have that opportunity. But I do also recognize that that is quite the responsibility. And, like, it is weird that voters actually have a say in how much, you know, what kind of extension a guy can get if they do or don't make the team. So, it's a weird thing to balance. I probably still lean yes, but that's... It's weird. No, it is. <laughs> it, it, it is. All right. Let's last thing, and I and I, and I got myself on a tangent. Is just, um, you would you say you would you would vote for Marcus Smart? Mm-hmm. How sure are you that he's the best defender on his own team? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, like, like, and and you realize you're you're talking to one of the big, the biggest like Robert Williams fanboys in the world. Yeah. I'm not saying I would. I'm not saying I would take Robert Williams over. I'm just saying like. That's like I can't remember the last time where like one team had two guys who were like plausible candidates for it. I mean, I mean, maybe, maybe. I mean, I was you know the year Giannis won it. I thought I I, I said that if I had a vote, I would have voted for Brook Lopez. Mm-hmm. So, but like that, but I was like the only one. So, but it seems like this year it's an actual live debate, isn't it? Uh, I can see it like. I just feel like Marcus Smart, like one individually, how many screen navigators are better? How many guys his size can defend the amount of positions and the amount of positional archetypes that he can? And then you add in the communication. Like, I think he is elite in his own right. And also what he does unlocks everything else. Like, I think because he's so good at a multitude of roles, it allows Robert Williams to be stashed on a wing and just roam off ball because there won't be as many messes to clean up because Marcus Smart is so stout. It can communicate elsewhere. And so, like, I, I think he's, like, I think he's their best defender. While even while I recognize, like, Robert Williams has been really good, I've loved what Al Horford's done this year. I'm a little bit worried about what he's going to look like in the playoffs just because of how much burden he's had so far this year. But he's been really good. But I, I still think it's, smart wanted and you argue about who comes after that that's fair and maybe and maybe one of the like the best arguments for smart is is like and this is going to be a weird one for me to me of all people to make but it seems like like they take their defensive mentality from him over all else like (laughs) you know they like you know i'm not saying the other guys in the team don't play hard but they play like as a team they play with an edge and that's not that's not really the way you would uh, any of the other, like you think about their other like top seven players like n- none of Tatum Brown Horford Williams White or Grant Williams you wouldn't really say that any of those guys play with you know like that nasty streak right that's that but as a team they do and you got to say that 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 like probably is generated a lot by Smart. Yeah, I think he sets the tone there. I think that's fair. And I feel I I, I felt like I just had an out of body experience making that argument. 
Amen. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I've kept you kept you for uh, exactly an hour. Um, why don't you uh, tell the folks where they can find you if you don't already know? And how do you not already know? I would encourage people to uh, listen to the Dunker Spot as soon as you're done listening to this podcast, of course, because I think he, uh, Nikias, and, and Steve Jones do just a really good job of of. Uh, of breaking the game down and, and having some fun with it. And I think I've told you this, but the interview you guys did with, uh, with Chris Herring, like right when his book came out was, mm-hmm. um, about like my favorite 30 minutes of listening to anything that, that I've, I've heard this year, just in terms of, of, you know, whether it's basketball content or anything else, I th- that was just a, a joyous 30 minutes of, of talking about basketball and, and things around it. I appreciate it, man. Um, but I echo Seth sentiments. Please subscribe. Listen to the Dunker Spot if you haven't already. You can find me on Twitter at Nikias NBA. Um, my written work is at BenTongNews.com. Um, I had a piece up on Isaiah Thomas and the way Charlotte's using him since he's been there. That dropped today, so you can read that as well. Um, also, if you want a lighter sports takes, um, every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I do a podcast called You Late. Um, with Jasmine L. Watkins, uh, star of NBA Twitter. We just kind of joke around, go over the biggest news in sports the day before. So check that out as well. All right. Uh, thanks a lot for uh, for, for joining. It's, uh, it, it's glad we finally were able to make this happen. I've been pestering <laughs> you for literally months. And, uh, and, <laughs> I'm and, sorry. And we, we, we made it happen. Uh, so so thanks a lot. I am I'm off tomorrow, and I am back with uh, – uh, the one and only Ben Taylor uh, is 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 uh, was my first guest on the pod. He's coming back on Thursday for uh, we're going to argue about various things uh, first on this podcast, then on his podcast, and uh, so tune into that, and uh, I'll talk to you then. Thanks a lot, everyone. <laughs>